everyone, and welcome to Residential Spread. Uh, my name is Molly Slavin. I'm here today with Corey Gergen. How are you, Corey? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, we're coming up on a year, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So mm. great stuff. Yeah. Um, also with me is Alexandra Edwards. How are you, Alex? I'm um, I'm here. <laughs> I know we, we kind of joked about how much we would get into our emotional states um, before we started recording, and I'm happy to do that, but my emotional state at the moment is just like, well, hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I will continue to uh, use humor to deflect, so um, <laughs> that's where I'm at. Um, Eric, Lewis, how are you today? I'm fantastic. That's not yeah. true, but I thought since we're having to answer <laughs> two of the recording, I might as well take advantage of it and surprise you all with a different answer. I believed you for a minute there. Jesus. So, like, <laughs> Dress for the job you want, not the job you have, right? Exactly. <laughs> it, emote, emote for the feeling that you want, yes. The whole, Be, like, smile and you'll make yourself happy thing? Yeah, yeah totally. Be the toxic positivity you want to see in the world. Yes, finally someone gets it. Glass half full. That's how it works. And Josh Cohen, how are you, Josh? Look, I'm good. I was doing better before we found out a day or two ago that the reason that the vaccine rollout has been so slow in Georgia is not, in fact, due to a supply shortage or bottleneck. Because we just learned that there's a whole bunch of doses sitting in freezers that have not been distributed. And that has created this image of Brian Kemp sitting atop these vaccines like Smog the Dragon in his treasure hoard. And I really want someone uh, to to enter that treasure hoard with the courage of a, of a Bilbo Baggins wielding sting and just find the place that is, is the weak point the, the scale in, in Smog's armor that's missing. Um, have I committed <laughs> enough to this metaphor? Have I taken it far enough to say I that? I've taken it uh, very far. Yeah, someone needs someone needs the the vaccines uh, to be liberated from the treasure hoard. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, I, I was think... I was really hoping we'd somehow bring Bard Bowman into this. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out real quick when Josh says a whole bunch of vaccines for listeners not in Georgia, he means close to a million. Yeah, yeah. A million vaccines. Because the headline on the article, the, when the story was broke, the headline was Georgia has lots of that, or Georgia has many vaccines in freezers. And then, like, the fourth graph of the story was at that point, it was like 900,000 something. So it was very nearly a million then. Uh, and yeah, I, like Josh, it really, like, it was it was the the straw that broke the camel's back. Although it's much bigger than a straw, it was it was too much for me. Um, but anyways, thank you, Josh, for humoring me with that lengthy metaphor. Of course, anytime. <laughs> yeah, I think if any of us go full Joker, I think that'll be the that'll be what does it. Um, <laughs> anyway, in 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 lieu of being the the Joker, we are instead term limited contingent faculty teaching humanities at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Like other schools, Georgia Tech has experienced massive disruptions, shifts, and changes due to the spread of coronavirus. We have now been teaching and researching in a pandemic for a year, and things are no more stable now than they were at the start. On this show, we investigate the sources and consequences of the policies that have led us here and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during a pandemic as members of the precariat. 
Yeah, and as Molly alluded to earlier, today we're going to be talking about uh, the one-year anniversary of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, so our temperature today is pretty simple. It's one. It's it's one year. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that you could mark the year. Um, and I've been seeing sort of one-year anniversary stories in the media for the last month or two. Um, but this is coming out uh, the third week of March, uh, which is roughly the time last year when things really started to shut down in the United States. Um, Tom Hanks announced that he had coronavirus, uh, the NBA shut down, and Georgia Tech ended in-person instruction. So that's kind of the year that we're marking. Um, <clears throat> and one thing that we, I find that we, are, we say a lot on the show is that we have a hard time processing or making sense of the big numbers or the amount of time or the scope of the pandemic. So we wanted to take this episode as a chance to sort of stop a little bit and take stock of things at this one year mark. Um, so we're going to be discussing kind of um, how we're experiencing uh, this uh, on, a, on personal levels uh, in terms of the profession uh, and in terms of um, being Georgians and citizens of the United States, I suppose. Um, so uh, just to sort of get us started, um, how are we how are we thinking about things? How are we feeling about things uh, as we approach and hit the one year anniversary? How have we dealt with the passage of time over the over the past year? Well, <laughs> it, hmm. you asked several questions there. Um, I'm trying to figure out which one I, I want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how are we doing emotionally? Like, I'll say for myself, I think that this anniversary is um, really hard. And um, I, I, I feel a little bit like an asshole saying that because I have not to this moment, knock on wood, really been personally affected by anyone close to me in my life having COVID um, or God forbid, passing away from COVID. Um, but of course, I, I was going to say I haven't really been affected, but of course I have been. We've all been affected. I mean, it's impossible not to be affected, right? I guess maybe if you're Jeff Bezos, I don't know. Um, like, Well, he's, he can, he's been affected in that he's made a lot of money off of it. Well, that's true. Yeah. Just like the uh, the hedge fund managers that we talked to Kelly Grotke about um, last week. Yeah. Well, now I don't eat the rich. I don't know. <laughs> um, you're all muted, but you're laughing. I know I... it. Um, that is true. <laughs> anyways, I was going to say that the way that I've been kind of marking time, I have found myself increasingly um, getting into weirder and weirder, like niche hobbies to, to see myself through these, this year. Um, and I find that marking the time in terms of the change of seasons is really important to me, maybe more important now that like every day is the same 70 degrees that we keep our uh, heating and AC set on. Um, and the weather is always indoor weather. Um, so yeah, my, my latest pandemic hobby is building tiny Lego towns um, that can be customized to be seasonal. So um, 
that that's where I am. I'm honoring my inner eight-year-old who, if given her druthers at any moment, um, would just be ready to throw herself on the floor and have a complete fucking temper tantrum meltdown, preferably in public. <laughs> um, what she really needs that eight-year-old me is to be kept as busy as possible <laughs> with um, soothing, mindful, non-taxing tasks. I, I think, I think the and I actually think the idea of building Lego towns is great. Uh, I love it. Uh, but sort of the narrative you put on that of some sort of like fall from other pursuits, I feel a little bit where. Um, like at the beginning of all of this, I was taking on um, like big cooking and baking uh, tasks. I was like, you know, I, I was one of those people who made a sourdough starter. And then like, it was very much like a tech box, like, oh yeah, I, I can do this. I am now done with the sourdough. Uh, but like, it was, it was those kinds of things, right? Things to keep my mind occupied, uh, sort of like tasks that I could accomplish and then get the satisfaction of accomplishing that task. But I find that the tasks are getting less and less ambitious over the course of the year. And now it's like cooking dinner is a task that I have accomplished. Uh, totally. It's like, no, totally. it's no longer like learning a new thing. It's, um, you know, I, cooking tofu the same way that I've been cooking tofu for a decade is a now an accomplishment for me. <laughs> well, I missed a solid five minutes of whatever Alex said because um, my kid was screaming and I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> um so i missed a solid five minutes i came back when you were talking about your temper tantrum anything before that i am completely oblivious <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's weird because um i had my kid in july so i have only been a parent in a pandemic i have no idea what it's like to have child care um, that is a foreign concept to me. I have no idea what it's like to do work when your kid's not around. Um, I don't know what those concepts are like, um, which is very weird. So I almost wonder if like normal parent time will eventually feel like a complete luxury, like somebody else can watch my kid while I teach, which sounds absolutely unfathomable right now. Yeah, we're we're lucky that our son has, for the most part, been in daycare for a lot of the the pandemic it's it's pretty small and they've done a good job kind of keeping things uh safe for everybody they they have had a couple of, of cases of teachers who've gotten it and things have had to shut down and, and all that kind of stuff but it, yeah it would be impossible to get any work done he's he'll be three in june so he's at a very active curious demanding age uh so you know, when we're watching him in the morning, in the evening, on the weekends, when he's home, I don't even try to get anything done, really, honestly, because it's and and like Corey was saying, like I I barely even cook anymore. It's just like 
what's the most convenient thing we could eat, get takeout a lot, you know, uh, try to keep our son alive and thriving and uh, teaching him all of the finer points of Star Wars and DC Comics. Uh, he can, he recognizes Din Djarin. He can, he knows Din Djarin by name, not just his title, the Mandalorian. Um, so I'm pretty proud of that. That's kind of our, our big recent pandemic Star Wars character achievement, but it's, it's, it's tough. It takes a, a ton of concentration because you're always thinking about your kids, even when you're not thinking about your kids. Right. And the pandemic is the same way. It's always running in the background. I think that's kind of getting at what Alex was talking about. Like those, those more tactile tasks or hobbies that take you away from it are great because it's not in the front of your brain, but it's still sort of there in the background. And so, um, yeah, I definitely empathize Molly. Like it's like, you've been, you've been, um, like running through water, you know? And so once hopefully when this is over and there's some semblance of, you know, not normalcy, but non pandemic life, it's going to be like running, not being underwater and you're going to be like, wow, this is so easy. I didn't unmute for a second because my kid was screaming, but I probably just should have. Be- well, there you go. I don't know. If you can hear that, <laughs> it's appropriate. Yes. It's topically It's a real flavor. Um, yeah. It's also weird. Like Josh, I mean, Elon must have been two, I guess when just doing math when we went into lockdown. Right. So um, it's weird how you can also mark the pandemic by how old your kid is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so his, yeah, his birthday's in, in the middle of June. So he turned two during the lockdown and he actually, it was funny because he, he turned to right up, like right before we were comfortable sending him back to day or right after we were comfortable sending him back to daycare. So up to that point, when we went into our first lockdown a year ago, fortunately my parents live in Atlanta. We like stayed with them for like almost three months And it was just a whirlwind of like, you know, my wife's job got super busy. My dad's job got super busy. Like we were all trying to finish like our spring classes remotely. Uh, We had Eli like running around my parents' house. So it was just like this kind of mayhem. And then in the summer, it seemed okay to send him back. And and there was kind of like a lull there. Uh, but it is, it is crazy. Cause you know, when he turned two, like normally you'd think, Oh, a big birthday, like do something. And it was just like us, which is fine. It was delightful, but you know, there's these little milestones. We were talking about like seasonality and that's another thing with your kids. Like when they're that young, there's all these weird, tiny milestones, you know? Uh, and so a lot of that for a lot of parents, it, that's just all lost. You can't really do anything, um, you can't gather with family, especially older relatives, things like that. So I think for a lot of people, that's that's not like making the front page news that your kid didn't have a two-year-old birthday party. But it is it is tough on people. And those are the things you kind of look forward to. And, and one thing that I've felt over this past year is it's made it very challenging to look forward to things. Thankfully, we have the vaccine. We have this agonizingly slow but steady rollout. So to some extent, I think we can look forward to this summer being a bit better. But this past year, you've never known what the horizon was, like what's the end point, right? It's, it's been this weird time loop. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like 
just the not knowing was what was the worst. Like, assuming that I couldn't get on a plane again until, like, 2030 was, like, where I was, you know, thinking for a while. I remember early on in the pandemic, a writer who I um, follow on Twitter, who I really like, she, she writes for the New Yorker, Rachel Syme. Um She, we're talking really early on, like a month in, she tweeted, um, like, how would you react if they just told you now that this is going to be a year of our lives? Um, and I was like, no, <laughs> there's my inner eight year old. I was like, no, it's not going to be a year of our lives. It can't be. This is horrible. Um, and here we are. And she was right. Um, and she was right in like weirdly more ways than one because that sense of the like refusal the like howdy eight-year-old refusal um inside of me is still alive (laughs) like really strong like I really did react that way when I found out it would be a year of my life I'm just gonna go lay on the floor and and kick and scream for a while you guys whatever it takes at this point yeah I think that's justified honestly I I might, I might kick and scream was, with you. <laughs> I was thinking the other day about, um, there was a meme that was going around like Irish Twitter at the start of the pandemic. Um, I look at Irish Twitter. That was like something like, oh, you know, when we were still talking about flattening the curve, like remember flattening the curve. And it was like, oh yeah, two weeks of my life. It'll be so hard. And there were like images from Just Eat, i.e., which is like their, the, you know, their Grubhub or their DoorDash. And, like, some Nintendo and, like, Netflix. And it was, like, two weeks. Haha, it's going to be so rough. And looking back on that now, it is so incredibly grim. (laughs) It's hard. We were all, like, just sweet summer children (laughs) (laughs) a year ago who had no idea, you know. Um, yeah, I had a doctor's appointment like in early March and I was supposed to go to the ACLA conference and I asked my doctor if I could go and she was like, oh, yeah, I don't think that'll be a problem. Just wash your hands. <laughs> I think she did. I think she did tell me to wash my hands. Oh, God. Oh, wow. I was going to go to the same conference, Molly. Uh, yeah. I was talking to a colleague of mine. We were going to... Uh, share, an, share a, a hotel room for the conference, and she was a little nervous about it. She was saying, oh, should we really go with everything that's going on? And I was like, oh, no, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. it'll be okay. And then I think later that afternoon, we got the email that ACLA was canceled, that school was closing, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, it was just insane. Like, I, I think... Part of me thinks that in a world where stuff made sense, like where the people who were in charge actually cared, (laughs) it would be ridiculous to think this should take a year. Like it really shouldn't have. There are plenty of places where it didn't, uh, or at least a handful of places, Um, but we don't live in one of those. Yeah, and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot and um, something that I've said to y'all before, but um, I think that like the fact that we didn't have 
a government that was prepared or willing to do uh, what needed to be done. And like still don't in some ways, I think um, well, certainly in Georgia, we still don't. Um, <laughs> but it it meant that we had to keep that we kept working. Right. And, you know, conferences got canceled, but got rolled over into the next year or uh, things like that. Like publishing is still happening. Teaching is still happening. And in fact, we had to teach in all kinds of new modalities and with without or with less access to health uh, child care than we had before. Um, and in some ways, the fact that we had to keep working made it harder for us to like step back and like realize what was happening while we were working. Um, if that makes sense, like, like we were never given time to process what was going on really. And so we have to like grab little moments here and there um, or stifle the urge to throw the temper tantrum that maybe we should all be throwing right now. Right. Uh, because there's something else that we need to get done. Yeah. I think a lot about this, this time as, uh, like an experience of collective trauma. Um, and I think that one thing that's really hard to know is like what the long-term effects of it will be on the world, but like we could even specifically say, you know, the country or the state um, or our field, right? As we like are ostensibly talking about higher ed, um, here and like everyone reacts to trauma differently that's just sort of a, a medical psychological fact right um, there are going to be people who are going to come out the other side of this who are fine um, for whatever reason there's a, a, a huge number of sort of um, a matrix of reasons that you do or don't experience something like post-traumatic stress disorder after going through a traumatic experience um, but I think that the, the number of people who are going to experience something like PTSD after this is going to be higher than we're prepared to deal with. Um, and you're right, Corey, like, because we've had to keep working, we haven't, like, we haven't taken time to grieve. There's been very little, like, work in the public sphere of, like, really, truly stopping to grieve. Um, for all the things that we've lost and all the people that we've lost and all the time that we've lost. Um, and I, I think I think a lot about the future and how even like how far away from now in the future people will still be kind of trying to figure out how to go back and process. I guess what I'm saying is if you're a teen, you should really think about going into like the psychiatric field because there's not going to be a shortage of, of patients who need help processing this stuff. Um, even, you know, years from now, I don't know. My, it's like a real downer. I can talk about my Lego town again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's worth sitting with, that and sort of thinking about um yeah like i i do i feel like i have a better sense of like what the day-to-day -day of my next the next six months of my life will look like than i have in a long time but yeah i i really have no idea like emotionally psychologically what they're going to be like right like what 
how how will my behavior change when I get vaccinated? I don't I don't know, right? Um, Josh, on, I saw you on Twitter responded to that question about who hasn't been to a restaurant in a year, and you said like the idea of a restaurant is now an abstraction to you. That's a bad paraphrase of a of a good tweet. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, I just think like. At the beginning, the first couple months, you know, it's like you were fantasizing about all the things that you, that you might do, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, restaurants is like the thing. And it's just become, because it's been a year, and because we also, we get a lot of, we get a ton of takeout and stuff. Mm-hmm. I actually, I don't even miss it anymore. I don't actually yeah. really even miss sitting in a restaurant anymore. I mean, I miss people. I miss the movie theaters, for sure. There are public things that that I will be very eager to do once this once it's possible and safe to do so. But a lot of these things, it's like, what was that even like? Why did we Why did we do that? Is it really worth doing that? I don't know. It's like some of the things I I think we've forcibly adapted to. I mean, it reminds you how much of like what we value is is inertia, right? It's like. We just keep doing these things. I mean, and, and especially the idea of like going in sick, you know, because we don't, you don't have like sick days, so you got to just power through it. And like in retrospect, it's like, oh, I guess we were just all giving each other the flu for no reason other than mm-hmm. capitalism. Great. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I I mean, I drive by restaurants all the time because where things are open, I see people there, and I just think like, well, that seems dumb. I yeah. drove down Peachtree the other day so I live like right off of Peachtree which is the main drag of Atlanta right well that was your first mistake right there (laughs) (laughs) but listen but listen so I drove I was on my way to Target because I had to refill the prescription that I need to stay alive um which is like the only time I go shopping now um but I I drove down Peachtree and in right in South Buckhead there's all of these like high rise buildings that have businesses um, on the ground floor. And one of them was a restaurant and it, it was outdoor seating. So it was like on the kind of patio area, right adjacent to the street. But these people, I'm going to, let me clarify. These white people <laughs> were packed in so fucking tight on this patio to eat brunch outdoors. And I was like, you're insane. You are literally crazy. Like, you that it is not French toast is not worth dying for. There's not a meal on the planet that is worth potentially getting exposed to COVID and dying or, for, or killing someone for. Right? I mean, that's yeah. the other part of it. Yeah. Um, like my husband has his first vaccination. I'm getting I'm getting my first vaccination next week. We'll both, you know, barring something terrible, be vaccinated by the middle of April. And we were talking about, like, what are we going to do? And I was like, honestly, even when I'm still fully vaxxed, I don't I, I don't feel comfortable being in a restaurant. Even the idea makes me very jumpy. I still don't feel right about it. Yeah. Um, I was like, maybe I could tentatively think about sitting on a restaurant patio, but certainly I'm not going anywhere inside. And even the patio makes me nervous. Yeah. I Yeah. I mean, I also have a lot of concern about the idea of going, but it was like reading – I brought up Josh's tweet because reading it made me realize that I also don't miss it, but I hadn't even clocked it. You know what I mean? Like I read like the first couple of months, I just like, oh, I'd love to go to, you know, name a favorite restaurant or like name a hot 
restaurant in Atlanta. Atlanta is a great food city and there's lots of great food all over the city. And reading Josh's tweet last week or whenever it was, it was like, oh yeah, no, I don't even miss that. And in fact, the entire, like the entire ritual seems weird to me now. Like, <laughs> why would I go sit down and be served food by someone? <laughs> Uh, it just the seems... real where you're breathing all these other people's right. germs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I did you all see that that graph the other day of childhood flu deaths this year? No. That there's been one. Um, I, was, I, was, I didn't see it, but I bet it's way down. <laughs> it's yeah. There there's one childhood flu death, uh, and like usually there's like a couple hundred a year, and it's like you know there's lots of talk of like oh I'd be so glad when I could give up my mask, but like. Why wouldn't we wear masks during the flu season? Yeah. Right? Like, why wouldn't we keep doing that? It seems yeah. to work. Yeah, but freedom. Well, I, I always yeah. forget about freedom. Right. I was going to say, the thing that, that is really striking to me is, like, not just how many things um, from our personal lives, seem kind of pointless in the face of the pandemic. So shopping for me was a really big one, right? Like mm -hmm. I was a person who loved to walk through Target, even if I wasn't going to buy anything. I just loved to look at consumer goods. I don't know <laughs> why I, I interrogate myself about it constantly. Um, but even really early on in the pandemic, when I would go to fill my prescription, I would think about like, oh, I could spend 30 minutes walking around and like looking at stuff. And then I'm like, why? Why would I do that? Like, I'm that it's dangerous. There's no I don't get any tangible benefit from this. And the risk is so high. Um, and so all of these things. But the one that, that struck me was talking about conferences, like academic conferences. Mm -hmm. um, I have not attended an academic conference since October of 2019. Um, I have not even thought about attending or submitting a paper for an online academic conference like and I see people constantly being like oh there's this a new CFP is up for this call for papers if you for some reason are listening to this and aren't an academic um but and like people are like oh I'm so excited I'm going to attend this talk and all these things and I I see this stuff and I'm like I don't fault people for, for wanting to continue their professional development and their academic careers and their academic lives. And that maybe that's the thing that like gives them um, some sense of normalcy or whatever. But I look at it and think like, why, why would you do that? Why are you doing that? I don't know. Yeah. I, I have like my field's annual conference is usually like mid March. So it was canceled last year. Um, and we're doing it virtually in April this year. And I have, I'm chairing a panel and I have a paper and I sometimes ask myself why, like I'm, I'm excited to like, you know, touch base with people uh, and, and, and things like that. But yeah, the idea of, 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 of writing that paper is, is um, sort of daunting uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them being that question of like, why? Like, why are we doing this still? Why bother, right? Yeah. Like, why bother yeah. sitting down to talk about, I don't know, I was I was going to say Francis Bernie, but then I was like, it's always worth sitting down to talk about Francis Bernie. So <laughs> I wish it was, I, I wish I was doing something on Bernie now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that, I'm sure that there's always a good Bernie panel, so I, I will find it and go to it and report back to you. Good, good.
Alex, I'm in the same boat as you, and you make me feel better by saying that. <laughs> so solidarity <laughs> in uh, current skepticism about conference going. And I mean, like, I think almost every aspect of academic life for me is uh, is in that same boat, with the exception of teaching, obviously, because for one thing, it's my day-to-day work, but it's also what I love. Um, it, yeah, I was supposed to turn in the, listen, <laughs> I was supposed to turn in the final draft of my book to my press in March of last year. and like like towards the end of March, right? I've been passed by my peer reviewers. I have minor edits to make before it can go to the in-house team who will do all the like copy editing, layout, proofing, all that kind of stuff that needs to happen. Um, and I emailed my editor sometime in the middle of March and I was like, hey, I'm not gonna like have this by the end of the month. Sorry. <laughs> um, and she was, you know, very kind. And she was like, Oh, thanks for emailing me. That's very nice of you. But obviously, like, you know, it's totally not surprising, whatever. I have had so much time over the course of the past year in which I I think I genuinely have like maybe two hours of work left on the book at this stage. Um, I have had two hours over the course of this 365 days. Um, have I even opened the file? No, because it seems fucking pointless. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I with yeah. The, on a smaller scale, I've, I've done that with like article edits. I have, I have been to an online conference. Um, and I attended a panel, a couple different panels where the moderator, like the guy who was putting together the conference came on and he would say something like, now this is virtual, so we don't have to be out of here at any given time. So you guys just talk as long as you want. No. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Sir. What, like, what would be the purpose of that? Like, I don't know. I do kind of want to stay rooted in, like, professional development. But, like, I am interested in hearing people talk for maybe 20 minutes, and then we got to cut it off, man. Like, I just don't – I I feel like there's another way people are going with it where they're just get, going – vary into their work and I just which is maybe what this moderator was doing and I had a very hard time seeing the value of that yeah Yeah. no that's that seems to me to be like the way to go would be to use this the the fact that we need to have virtual conferences as a I don't want to say opportunity because that's not the word I mean but as a reason to rethink the problems with how we do academic conferences under normal circumstances. And one of those problems is that reading work at each other for 20 minutes is not a great way to share or, or learn from each other. Yeah. So the idea that you would make it longer is nightmarish to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought each time like this is, Every time he did it, I thought, oh, oh no. And thankfully, no one actually took him up on it, which was delightful. But um, (laughs) I was scared every time. I Yeah, Um, I imagine being that person who's, like, slowly sliding, like, page 8, 9, and 10 back into their talk. (laughs) 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 Or, like, like 
the person the person who like is clearly reading sections of a 20 page paper and they're just like well i'm just reading it all <laughs> well now yeah oh god oh no you know that in some panel i didn't go to that happened too you know you know that it happened yeah i think I, this is like a personal i have felt this long before the pandemic but i think that all um scholars who work in the field of like quote unquote english should be forced literally forced tied to a chair and forced to watch the presentations of media scholars like cinema and media studies um scholars because they're so much more engaging and they like have visuals and do interesting things and they do not just read 20 pages that are double spaced um and i think that our field would be better for it I, Maybe now more than ever. At a and I don't, I don't remember what the 18th century hook was, but I once saw a film scholar at an 18th century conference, uh, a British scholar who was doing work on the film Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, hmm. and he brought someone, he brought an American with him to read the quotations because he could not, he could not do them justice. He said. So someone like flew across the Atlantic with him to read the quotations from the film. <laughs> and you're right. It was much more engaging than, um, than, you know, me reading Keats lines at people. <laughs> it's, I think that the thing that's interesting though, like a year on, I guess, one of the things that continues to happen is that we continue to be able to rethink like what it is that we do and how we just normally approach our lives, our careers, our, our day-to-day experiences, but also, you know, the day-to-day experiences of our fields and our institutions. Um, and it's exhausting, but I do think in a lot of ways that can be helpful. Um, like, there's this anarchist saying, right, and it's very simple, another world is possible. Um, and I think a lot of times there's like a, a poverty of imagination that we do things the way we do because that's how we've always done them. We read double-spaced MLA <laughs> formatted papers to each other in rooms because that's mm-hmm. the way that we've always done it. Um, and it can be hard to think outside of that without something to like kind of shake you up and force you to think outside of that. So I think um, I am definitely not saying that the pandemic has in any way been good. And if we could have ended it on March 15th, 2020, I would have happily done that. Um, But this is where we are, right? So I guess in some ways we like have to find what we can take from it that could be good for our world um maybe and for me it's that it's that like the opening up of imaginative possibilities i yes uh i i agree i think also the the thing that concerns me is that there's and like there's like an equal and opposite reaction which is to like for like like some people want to like double down on the things that work, mm-hmm. that can seem normal if that makes sense mm-hmm. uh and i think that causes that causes problems like oh now we can read longer papers to each other it causes problems like uh 
oh no, we have to keep producing at the, you know, we have to worry about learning loss during a year plus of absolute, you know, trauma and, you know, economic collapse and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, sorry. I, you were giving us a high note and I, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I made I, it, I made it a, a downer. I think you're right though. And as you were saying that, I was seeing those people on that patio in Buckhead again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, right. So what is that if not doubling down on the white privilege of being able to be served food mm-hmm. in public? Yeah. And, and they seem safe because they want to pretend to be safe. I, I like what you said, Alex, about we need to have more fertile imaginations, and I think mm. I think there there are opportunities to do that. And for thinking about the future, I think that's a good kind of goal or mindset. How can we rethink things? How can we do things uh, differently than we've done them? Not only what led us into a pandemic, but all the mistakes made along the way, many of which we've documented on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like you said, uh, uh, other worlds are possible, for sure. Including small ones made of Legos. All right. (laughs) Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye.